Thank you, Tom. So Revelations chapter 5. Uh, if anyone's got a pew Bible, they can shout out the number of the page. 1030. Thanks, Tom. I think you might have done that, actually. Um, so this is God's Word. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. When he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you, were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honour and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honour and glory and might for ever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Great, thank you, Mark. Well, let's just pray, shall we, as we come to God's Word. Do keep that uh, passage open, but let's pray. Lord Jesus, we praise you and thank you that you are the only Saviour of the world. We praise you and thank you that we have come to know your saving power in our lives, those of us who've trusted in you. Lord, we thank you so much that you are alive, that you reign in heaven, that you are our teacher, our Lord. Lord, please would you speak to each of us. Thank you that you are the Savior from our sins. Thank you that you dealt with them. And so you can deal with us as we come to you in our sin and weakness. Please strengthen me by your Holy Spirit. Please strengthen us all to hear your voice and to worship you. Amen. Well, there is a real danger at Christmas, isn't there? That unwittingly we believe a different narrative to the true one, the true Christmas 
narrative. Our culture presses in on us as a marginalized minority and emphasizes that what we need to be thinking about at Christmas is stuff, things. We, we need to make sure that Christmas dinner is perfect with whatever makes it perfect. I don't know what it is for you. Turkey, cranberry sauce, bread sauce, that's a weird Parker thing, sprouts, whatever it might be. <clears throat> We're bombarded with the message, aren't we, that there needs to be amazing presents under the Christmas tree for the children. And if there are not, we have failed. That there's this materialistic pressure to perform. And then there's the sentimental perfection that is presented at every nativity play. Don't worry, I, I do love them. I, I just think it's a good, helpful picture. You know, baby Jesus, no crying he makes. We should just say he's not really human, isn't it? Because all babies cry, don't they? Mary and Joseph are serene as they approach the inn rather than slightly stressed out, if you think about it. They've just been traveling for days and they get to the hotel and there's no room and they have to have their child in the parking lot. I mean, I... I can't imagine everything was sweetness and light between Mary and Joseph. Can you? This is more the real world of train strikes and the cost of living crisis than the unreal world of the serene school nativity. I mean, how did they feel? Now, this is the third Sunday in Advent as we consider the first and second coming of Jesus Christ. And it's worth reminding ourselves of what is happening in between his first and second comings. And that's why I think the book of Revelation is so helpful. And as we look at this passage, we'll see that what Jesus has done in the real spiritual realm, his victory was messy. It was won by physical suffering. It was won by being flogged, by blood and tears. This was his perfect spiritual victory, not conquering by military might or by status in society or having all the numbers, the popularity ratings, but by being slain. He rules as the lamb who was slain. And that's just really helpful for us to be reminded of, I think, at this time in the year, as it was helpful to the original readers uh, of Revelation. Um, I, I chose this passage to preach on before I chose to preach on Revelation 1 to 9 in, in the new year, which is where we're going. So we will be looking at this again. Uh, so I don't need to, to sort of mention everything, but I do need to give us some idea of context before we dive into the text. John is writing towards the end of the first century to all Christians as they face persecution, uh, to encourage them to endure in the face of Roman empire power, to keep going in the face of marginalization. They were few in number and martyrdom. They were being slaughtered 
And so it was very easy for them back then to think that they were not really where history was at. And so the living Lord Jesus reveals to the Apostle John and he opens a window into heaven so that they can see and be encouraged that they're not marginal and being slaughtered is not the worst thing that can happen. Let's just uh, flip back to chapter 1 so we can see the purpose of uh, the book of Revelation. So chapter 1, verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. This is a blessing, this, this revelation, this window into he- to the heavenlies. And John is clear, if you look at verse 9, that he is a partner with all other Christians in what? Your brother and partner in the tribulation, that's suffering, and the kingdom, and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. That's what it means to be a Christian. It is a suffering, an enduring kind of life. And then uh, we'll we'll look at this um, in the new year, but towards the end of the letters to the churches, if you go to chapter 3, verse 21, one of the reasons why Jesus is portrayed as this conqueror is because that is what is expected of all his people. In fact, that victory has already been won for all his people. So chapter 3, verse 21 The one who conquers, that's a refrain in all the letters to the churches, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. What a victory that will be when we join Jesus. It's almost unbelievable, isn't it? To reign with him. But what kind of spiritual power conquers? Two things that I think this passage teaches us, the the logic of the passage. Firstly, the only one worthy to rule history is the slain lamb. He's the one who conquers by being slaughtered. So worship him like heaven does. The only one worthy to rule history is the slain lamb, so worship him like heaven does. And I I hope by the end of our time this morning we we feel a little bit more like worshipping the reality of who Jesus is and what he's doing in the world. So firstly, the only one worthy to rule history is the slain lamb. John sees in chapter 5 that a throne holds a scroll. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? We'll go in later as to to what this particular scroll might be drawn from in terms of the contemporary situation. 
What's important is, this is the scroll of, of God's plan being unfurled. God's redemption and God's judgment. And the question is, who is worthy to unleash history? Who is worthy to bring redemption and judgment? And verse 3, no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. John weeps at the possibility that there is no one worthy to be in charge of history. No one worthy to bring in the redemption of God. No one worthy to bring the judgment of God. And I think we just need to pause and feel that. For some of us, it might be quite difficult. I was talking to somebody at the Gingerbread House evening, and wasn't it a wonderful evening? Uh, and she said rather glibly, yeah, I'm an atheist, yeah, I'm, I don't believe, you know. People can be quite glib about there being no purpose to history, no reason for existence. And maybe people do live for minor purposes in their lives. But if there is no plan, no ultimate purpose, no God, there is a deep weight on a human soul. There is weeping. I, I remember this before I became a Christian. I couldn't have expressed it, but it's the logical outcome of a world with no purpose, is it not? I was talking to a young man a couple of weeks ago, and he said that he had been caught up in this atheistic nihilism, and it just it started to really get him down. And he thought, well, well, maybe there is a purpose. And he started to read the Bible. But we need to feel this, don't we? Particularly if that was our past. Just remember those days when there was the weeping, that deep soul weeping of no purpose at all. And maybe if that's never been us, Think of what it must have been like for John as he heard this and by the Spirit was enabled to weep at the possibility that there may be no one in charge of history. But thankfully we know that's not true. But it's, it's good to feel that, isn't it? To empathize, to try and allow that weight to affect us so that when we are meeting friends and family who think there is no purpose to life, they may be covering over that weeping. They may be covering over that nihilistic gnawing deep down in their souls. But we need to, to remind ourselves that they're just covering over what they really feel. Thankfully, we know that's not true. Verse 5, one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Weep no more. Why? Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah... The root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Praise God, there is one worthy to be in charge of history, a human being. There is one who has conquered so his people can conquer. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the one prophesied by Jacob, who will be victorious like a lion over its prey, who will rule with majesty. There's something majestic about a lion, isn't there? I don't know if you've been to uh, Colchester Zoo recently. 
Um, but you see a lot, you're quite glad that there's a fence in between. They're quite good at eating things, killing and eating things. That's the picture. Jesus has fearful majesty. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's the root of David, the one prophesied in Isaiah 11, beyond the exile, who will restore the people of Israel. He's a king who will be full of the Holy Spirit, full of counsel and knowledge and of the fear of the Lord who will judge. So he is the one who's conquered. And, and yet what does John see? This one who can open the scroll and its seven seals, which then the rest of the book of Revelation really unfurls. Between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Those two things don't tend to go together. If a lamb has been slain, it's usually lying dead on the ground. It's not standing, so it's been slain and yet it's alive. Perfect in power. That's all the sevens means. Now, this is difficult to imagine, but I think really important, particularly at Christmas time. You know, the, the baby of a poor couple who have to flee from Herod's murderous threats is actually the cherished son of God, if we have eyes to see. The man who is threatened for his whole public ministry with murder is the promised Davidic king. The mighty Messiah is a blood sacrifice. God's unstoppable plan of salvation involved a cross as well as a crib, shed blood as well as birth in a shed. God's power is very different to human power, is it not? See, the first century church needed to hear that being marginalized in the Roman world was not evidence of weakness. Facing being thrown to the lions and singing on the way was spiritual power like their saviors because he conquered by being slaughtered. And it helps us to see that we, we, when we suffer for being marginalized, and we suffer in some ways, every time we realize that we're few in number and that the powerful numbers that are out there that seem to be impervious to this most wonderful of messages is not evidence that we are not on the winning side. It helps us to see that death for Christ. And all those little mini deaths that we, we die every day, don't we, when we're in the workplace, or we invite somebody again to come and hear the gospel and they say no. All those mini deaths, as well as the big death, is not evidence that we're on the losing side. With Paul, we can say death is at work in us so that life is at work in you, the cross comes before the resurrection to glory. We need so often to be reminded of this. 
that the glory of Jesus, the glory of his victory, which is portrayed before all the myriad, myriad of angels, the thousands upon thousands of angels, that the whole of creation, everything in the sea, everywhere, praises him for, is his slaughter. Isn't that remarkable? Isn't that sort of topsy-turvy? It's just the wrong way round. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. Why? For you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you've made them kingdom of priests to our God. And they will reign on the earth. They will be victorious like you are victorious, Jesus, because they're willing to die to self, die to popularity, die to what looks like is powerful. So if we're a Christian here this morning and we're part of his kingdom, we are priests. We can enable others to know God. We will reign on the earth because he was slain. He paid the price. So can we see afresh? We constantly drift away from this, don't we? Because we're bombarded by messages about what is powerful and worthwhile living for. Can you see what is valuable to heaven? Can we see the value of Jesus being willing to take into himself a human nature, to empty himself in humble obedience to his Father, to become obedient to death, even death on a cross? Do we value what heaven values? The Son of God paying the price for my sin, the Son of God bleeding to rescue me, enjoying the wrath of God and his body and soul to forgive me, to bring me into his family, to give me... A new song to take away my weeping. Do we see the value of his ransom? Of countless billions that he has ransomed. The ministry that he's brought me into as a priest, I can introduce others to God. It might be costly. Do I value what heaven values? The only one worthy to rule history is the slain lamb and he is praised and will be praised forevermore by all of creation and they're already doing it because he's already conquered. Isn't that great? Uh, more briefly, because that is true, we should praise the slain lamb in song and speech with heaven. We should praise the slain lamb in song and speech with heaven. Now, you see, John is not showing what is going on in heaven so that he and those whom he writes to just say, oh, that's interesting, that's very interesting what's going on in heaven. Very, very interesting. No, because the martyrs that died in those days, the believers are written in to this heavenly picture, look with me at verse 8. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. There are our prayers, the prayers of the saints, the prayers of the first century church, there in this picture. In fact, if you read the rest of the New Testament, we are already there in heaven. Colossians 3 would suggest that our true life is the life that is already hidden 
with Christ in God that will be revealed when he returns. Ephesians would suggest that we are already seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. We have every spiritual blessing in Christ. We're already there, so we can join in with heaven's song as they sing, verse 9, a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. Jesus, you are so worthy of my praise and my singing, for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God. See, more is going on than singing when we sing. We do know that, don't we? We are joining in by the Holy Spirit with heaven's song. See, it's not so much that the music, or although that helps, it's who we are valuing that matters. Our adoration of Jesus, our praise of Jesus as we sing like the elders falling down, emptying ourselves of ourselves and being taken up with him. It's what the whole of history is about. It's what the whole of eternity will be about. Uh, maybe if, like me, you come on a Sunday morning or you sing during the week and it's a bit of a struggle, we need to ask the Holy Spirit to help us. Maybe we need to internally confess to God. Maybe we need to feed our imaginations, though, with reality. We are in this heavenly glory. We are praising with the spirits of righteous people made perfect. We are there spiritually praising the Lamb as those standing before him, looking at him, the only one who is worthy, the one who is in control of history. So let's sing with hearts engaged with reality. That's reality, isn't it? And let's also speak words of liturgy. And you say, oh, no, John, you've lost me now. I, that, that's something different. No, it's not. There's liturgy in heaven, so it's good enough for me. I looked, verse 11, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice. They're all saying the same words. Verse 13, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And then later on they say together to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshipped. They are saying together, we tend to think of liturgy, I think, of a set form of words we say together as a bit of a chore. M maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> no. Our liturgy, the words that we say together, are echoing what's being said in heaven. Praise to God, rejoicing in the victory of the Lamb. When we say we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, we are confessing truths that save us from hell for heaven, that are true about the Lamb, the worthy one who is in charge of history. Now, just as I close, and at the risk of relieving the pain of last night, sorry about uh, mentioning the football. I did say I was going to mention the football. 
Uh, for those of you who don't know, England lost. Yeah, just just in case you were not aware. <laughs> but you know, you go, you you see everything that's happening, and there's a mixture of uh, singing. You know, it's coming home. It's coming. I'm not going to try and sing. And speech, allez les bleus, or come on England, come on England. Oh, I suppose that's kind of halfway between the two, isn't it? But but that's the kind of picture that we have of chanting, except in this case, it's victory. It's not, come on Jesus. No, it's, he's worthy, he's in control of history. He's already won, he's conquered, he's won. And so when we gather to sing, and whether we gather to speak liturgy, there's to be that spirit of victory. When we say set words together, this is the dominant mood. Yes, there's to be a different mood as we confess our sins. But as we sing, we sing a new song, heaven's song. We sing with a certain hope of victory. We speak words of victory and confidence and loud. The weeping of irrelevant suffering is over. The grief of marginalization is a thing of the past because we are on the winning side. Whatever it looks like, it looks very different, doesn't it? We have been ransomed by Jesus Christ. He was slain to buy us back. Oh, how he is worthy. Is he not worthy? Of all our praise, of all our summoned confidence, is he not worthy? The lamb who was slain, let us fall down, at least in our hearts, and worship him, adore him, live for him. He has conquered, and so will we.